Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 180 being recorded on Thursday, June 20th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Listeners, come with me into the Wayback Machine, or as Jason prefers, the time travel hot tub. And we are going back to January 2018 when we released episode 114. Uh, If you remember that episode, as I do very clearly, Deloitte released their epic retail bifurcation report. Uh, Personally, this report has been a huge game changer for me uh, because my day job at Spiffy, I I use it internally to help everyone on our team understand the convenience-oriented consumer and the value-oriented consumer. Uh, I share it with partners uh, and then also with potential investors uh, because a lot of them say, what is this convenience-oriented consumer you speak of? And I say, boom, and I drop the the, very large report on them, and then they uh, don't ask that question again. Uh, so <laughs> it's been super helpful to me. Uh, so that episode is definitely burned in my memory, uh, and is at you know the retail bifurcation report that Deloitte put out uh, eighteen months ago is on the top of my digital bookshelf uh, and has been super helpful. Now, fast forward back here to June 2019, Deloitte has updated their thinking uh, with a new report titled, The Consumer is Changing, but perhaps not how you think. So we are really excited to have back on the show, Casey Lobaugh, who spearheaded this new report and was also instrumental in the bifurcation report. And uh, Jason is super jealous because Casey has a much cooler title than Jason. Uh, Casey is the principal with Deloitte and chief retail innovation officer. Boom. If I'm doing my words right, if we don't count and, that's still three more words than Jason has in his title. So congratulations on the title win, Casey, and welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, and let the record show that Casey and I are both paid by the word. So his his longer title does accurately reflect his greater wealth. <laughs> and I, I always like to say, I, I know that's my title because I'm the one that made it up. <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, Casey, uh, thrilled to have you back on the show. Uh, it has been a while um, and, you know, the show continues to grow. So we have some new listeners. Um, can you give us a quick recap about uh, your background in the space and sort of what your role is at Deloitte? Oh, sure. Th- thank you very much. First of all, it's a, it's a pleasure to be back with you guys. Uh, you know, at Deloitte, uh, I'm, a, I'm a partner or a principal within our retail practice. Um, and really, I spend, you know, I've spent the last 22 years with Deloitte uh, consulting with retailers the entire time and really operating the ent- most of that time on what I'd call the cutting edge of retail. So, you know, back in 99, I was helping to, you know, launch our the beginnings of our uh, e-commerce practice, which, of course, later became uh, a big portion of our business called Deloitte Digital. Uh, you know, continued in retail, sort of thinking about where we go next and spending a lot of time. And really, the, the title of Chief Retail Innovation Officer for us isn't necessarily focused on the technologies 
which a lot of a lot of times the word innovation sort of evokes this idea about technologies, but we spend a lot of time thinking about the future of the industry. Uh, you know, what's the drivers, you know, what's driving the industry? And so you'll see a lot of the, the innovation that I'm sort of focused on has more to do with the consumer, the changing marketplace, the changing competitive landscape, and how do we think about advancing, you know, retailers in that um, context. Uh, that that is awesome, and uh, you know, so you put this uh, report we're going to talk about tonight. You've published um, on the Deloitte website, so I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. If you're not on a exercise bike or commuting to work, um, you may want to grab it and uh, download it to have as a reference while we're talking. Otherwise, uh, just enjoy the conversation, and you can you can read the report uh, later at your convenience. Um, now, rem- rem- remind us, Casey, you are uh, based in Kansas City. Uh, I am, but I like to say, uh, you know, I'm in Kansas City because that's where my wife and kids live. Uh, you know, frankly, I'm serving uh, retailers uh, across the U.S. And, and across the globe. So I spend very little of my working time uh, in Kansas City, though I do happen to be in Kansas City today. Nice. And uh, there's a rumor that this whole Deloitte thing is a side hustle for you and that your main gig is that you're uh, a bass guitarist and a rock band. <laughs> that's that's my, my, my hidden secret, but probably isn't that that hidden because it just so happens every time I'm on your show, I have another show coming up and I've got one next week. I'll be playing up in Minneapolis. Um, and every time I play, it's always related to retail. So a lot of times we play at, uh, you know, at, at NRF every year, I get to participate in that event, but we actually started doing a bit of it internally as well. We have a big practice meeting next week in, in Minneapolis and uh, some of the practice leaders uh, to get together a band, which I did. I reached out into the practice and found a whole collection of musicians and we got ourselves organized and I get to play another show next week. So that's my uh, little secret uh, retail side hustle, um, you know, that I've maintained for the last couple of years. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook, isn't it? The, uh, tell listeners the name of your band. Oh, yeah. The band that's playing next week that I'll be playing with is The Skews. Very retail friendly. Yeah, except, that's the except other people are going to be like, what? <laughs> right, right. Well, it just so happens that this is for our, our retail and consumer products practice. So everybody okay. there should get the inside joke. Okay, good. Um, so uh, I'm super excited to dig into the report. Uh, I've already kind of read it several times, but every time I talk to you, I always kind of get a different flavor. So let, let's start kind of at 30,000 foot headline um, why'd you do a new report and what are the headlines from what you found in your research? Sure. Um, well, first of all, right, right about the time we were publishing the last report, the great retail bifurcation, and I was proudly releasing it, uh, you know, people within our practice and our clients were asking me, okay, what's next? And, you know, as I tried to take a deep breath and sort of think about that, I sort of noodled on, well, what, what did we learn through that report? Um, and, and how would we think further about that? Now, one of the things we always try and do is we try and think about what's the market talking about and what's the conventional wisdom that's floating in the marketplace and is there a reason to challenge it? And that's really where I started. At the time, this idea of you know, the changing consumer was really, you know, it was really, to me, it was obvious that it was out there in the marketplace as the narrative. You know, these articles about, you know, how today's consumer is now in charge and the consumer is changing, or more importantly, or more, more interestingly, might be the millennial, you know, how different the millennial is. So we hear things like consumers are shifting from products to experiences, or we have to, we have to learn to serve the, the time-starved consumer. 
uh, you know, or the narrative that just comes around, you know, consumers are going to physical locations less uh, or that personalization is this incredibly important thing to consumers. All of those things are just things that are out there in the marketplace that you'll read about. Um, and so we said, okay, well, are those true? Let's talk about this changing consumer. And that's really what we did. We spent about 10 months going deep, uh, trying to figure out if there was data either to support or to help us, you know, think about those questions maybe in a different way. And through that, we came up with really fast. I mean, I'm just fascinated by having the opportunity to do the, the study uh, and discover that, frankly, most of those things that I just mentioned within the data just doesn't, the data doesn't support that those are true. I'm shocked. Uh, and, yeah. And, and frankly, there's other things that are really powerful in the data that nobody seems to be talking about. So it's sort of the combination of those two things that we decided to, you know, really spend some time sort of shaping the report. And I like, I like this quote, you know, that says, change the way you look at things, and then suddenly the things you look at change, right? And that's what I feel like we did through this report is sort of thought about it and said, you know, how, how do we go look at this differently? So hopefully, hopefully that makes sense as a tee-up. Oh, it, it totally does. And so... Um... When when folks have asked me, like I, I've tried to like summarize and say, like, so for example, a, a super common thing that you hear uh, pundits and the media talking about are how different millennials behave than previous cohorts. That like, you know, twenty five uh, year old millennials uh, like to do this, and this is how they spend their money, and me, you know, and that's very different than how uh, Gen Xers or Boomers did at twenty five, and like a maybe a a signature example is uh, millennials are spending more of their budget on entertainment and less on material goods because they they index towards experiences over possessions. For example, is a, a common common uh, a theme you hear in the market. And what your your data found is actually that uh, uh, more wealthy people tend to spend uh, more money on entertainment, and it just so happens that millennials, uh, you know, are, are behind and are getting their wealth much later. Do I, I uh, sort of have that right? That, that the wealth is dictating the behavior much more than the, yeah. the age cohort. That's right. So let me, let me take on the first point because I, yeah, that's, we took that head on and said, oh, is it true that well, we started with, is it true that consumers are spending more on, on entertainment or, you know, things that are more experiential, let's call it, than, um, than products? And so we looked at share of wallet data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. We looked at it over a 30-year period. Uh, and then we sort of zoomed in and said, okay, let's start at 30 and then let's zoom in at 20. But I, frankly, it doesn't matter which way we looked at it. What we found was that, relatively speaking, um, uh, most categories of spending haven't changed much, with a few exceptions. Now, first of all, let me talk about entertainment. Over that period, spending on entertainment went from 5% of the wallet down to 4%. The same proved true if we looked at, at, at millennials or, or people under 30, uh, because obviously 20, 30 years ago, they weren't millennials in that age group. But we looked at that age group, and, and they spend less of their wallet on entertainment today than they did 20 years ago, uh, and even less than they did 30 years ago. So that was the first shock is like, that's not true. We're not actually spending more of our wallet on entertainment. Millennials aren't spending more of their wallet on entertainment. Now, secondarily, though, 
there were a couple of categories that were different as well. The first one that, that you know, I think people point at, uh, which is true, is apparel. And apparel has actually dropped pretty substantially. In fact, it's dropped roughly in half in terms of the percentage wallet being spent on apparel. But we've also gone deep in apparel. And what we discover is people are not buying less apparel. In fact, apparel uh, sales are growing at a, at a unit level, roughly on par with the growth of retail. Okay. However, the price per unit has dropped substantially over the last 30-year period. And I personally would attribute that to two facts. One, one you know, is that um, clearly there's deflationary pressure on apparel prices, you know, driven by off price, driven by some of the fast fashion, uh, you know, introductions that have been on, uh, on board, but also by cultural differences. So we're buying less formal wear than we once did simply because the attire that many people wear at work uh, no longer, you know, needs to be a suit and tie and therefore the price points have come down. So the, the idea that we're buying less apparel or it isn't true, the, the idea that we're buying cheaper apparel or spending less on apparel is true. The idea that we're shifting it to entertainment is not true. But that leaves open the question, okay, well, where, where are we shifting that money to? And it's true for consumers. It's even more true for millennials is that our money is shifting to non-discretionary expenses. That's because there's been a skyrocket, skyrocketing of uh, you know, the, the inflationary pressures on things like healthcare, uh, of course, like education, which gets more pronounced in the younger consumer, uh, you know, things like fuel, um, travel, housing, et cetera. So it's really the shift of our wallet towards non-discretionary versus a shift from, let's say, stuff to experiences that uh, a lot of people in the media might want to talk about. Got it. And I, I want to, uh, at some point, we'll come back to the apparel point, because I think that's really interesting. But on the more macro point, um, there's a bunch of useful information in your in your report, but there's a few things that are mildly depressing. And, and this feels like one of them. Um, the, like, so, you know, there are these, I'll call them non-discretionary costs that are, that are increasing in share of wallet, uh, like healthcare and, and uh, um, uh, housing. Education. Um, and then, yeah, I was gonna, like, arguably, you could argue whether education is discretionary or not. But um, regardless, more people are getting educated than ever before. And that cost is significantly higher. And so that, like, that's a feels like a, a significant contributor to, you know, millennials having a significantly lower net worth, you know, and often more debt than previous cohorts did at that same age. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, since 1997, the percentage of college graduates has increased by 46 percent to roughly 35 percent of the population. That's that's up from 24 percent of the population in 1997. So that's a substantial increase. But this has come at a cost, right, because student debt you know, has risen 160 percent over the past 13 years. That's for consumers that are under 30. Now, as a result of that, the net worth of consumers under 35 has decreased by $3,890. And that's a 34% decrease uh, from where we were in 1995. So that's substantial, right? That's a substantial decrease uh, you know, on net worth. So one of the things that I think gets lost um, you know, is this idea that, that millennials you know, behave differently because they're culturally different. Or, or well, that's what people say. But what gets lost is the idea that there are real financial constraints 
on the millennial population that, that likely have a relationship to major life choices, you know, whether or not they're ready to buy a house, whether or not they, they're in the financial condition to buy a house, uh, whether or not they're ready to get married, whether or not they're ready to have their first child. We, we, we talk about those things. We know, uh, of course, that the millennials, you know, are, are doing all those things later in life. But sometimes those are spoken about as if the millennial is just this different animal. They showed up on earth. We can't figure them out. They behave so completely different, right? Um, but we don't talk enough about the um, pressures. Because we talked about before in, the, in the, um, you know, the, the great retail bifurcation is that while, yes, median incomes are up, you know, across the board, median income is up. However, when you break it out by income groups, what you find is dramatically, disproportionately, income gains have gone to the top 20%. And frankly, the, the, the lower 80% are either just slightly better uh, or, or not much better at all than they were 10 years ago. So for 80% of the population, we've sort of got this, this lost, you know, this lost decade. Uh, and when you apply or non-discretionary cost rising on top of that, it only gets worse, right? When you really look at who has more discretionary money to spend today than they did 10 years ago, it's generally only the top 20%. So now you layer in millennials, a couple of things to know about that is we know that the millennial generation is dramatically more racially diverse uh, than any generation in history. In fact, if you if you look closely enough, you'll find that the millennial generation is 44% is non-white. And that's compared to only 25% for the baby boomers. So that was one of the things that shocked me. But you got to layer this in and sort of recognize that when we're talking about the top 20%, you know, growing their income. You know, those tend to be older. They tend to be Caucasian, uh, you know, uh, by and large, um, you know, of that population. So we're talking about a more diverse, younger generation who hasn't participated in the income gains. However, they've taken on student debt, you know, at a rate, you know, that's never happened before, you know, in the history of our country. Uh, and they're left in this economic position that doesn't get near the attention, doesn't get near the attention, if any, you know, real attention relative to this idea that the millennial is just a different animal making different choices than, than their father did. Cool. So um, let's connect this back to the other report is, is the convenience oriented consumer still alive and is that still a thing um, or no, they're, they're no longer there or, you know, help us reconcile those two things. Yeah, you know, that's a great point that I've been thinking a lot about. So first of all, in our previous report, The Great Retail Bifurcation, we did discover that there, there is a collection of retailers that appeal to those consumers that uh, where price is incredibly important to them. And that relates to the income, to the non-discretionary, the, the economic situation I just talked about. And there's another set of consumers. Let's call those consumers on the high end, the high income consumer that is free with their money and their choices to make different decisions than just focusing on price. And they're focusing on things like convenience. Um, and so without a doubt, that bifurcation of the economy still exists and it's driven by consumer you know, economics. But, I, but I'd actually hold that up because you use the right words, sort of thinking about convenience and thinking about um, you know, value. Let's call it value and convenience. Because there's another element that's out there, another um, conventional wisdom in the marketplace. And that is 
that the future, I've heard this one, the future of retail is all about experience. Mm-hmm. Well, now it kind of depends on how you, you know, define experience. If you want to define it really broadly, which by the way, you know, I, I would define the human experience very broadly to include things like, hey, do I have enough money to pay for lunch, you know, lunches for my kids this week? Um, but a lot of times in, in, the, in, in the media, in the press, or in, in the conferences we'll go to, experience gets focused more on like the in-store experiential factors, okay? So the future of retail is experience, sometimes gets painted that way. But when you really look at what's driving the market today, what you find is uh, value is driving the market without a doubt. We're seeing you know, uh, continued um, uh, great success of the off-price sector. We see continued really strong growth in the dollar store sector. But we also see relative to convenience, we're seeing a lot of movement on the convenience front, right? It, you know, whether it's the rise of the convenience stores, which is one thing that doesn't get talked about very often, they're having just great success, uh, many of the convenience stores are, or it's delivery or, you know, click and collect or you name it that sort of get to more convenience factors. So I look at the, the market and go, what's driving the market is value and convenience, but somehow we've gotten ourselves sidetracked with this argument about the future of retail is experiential. Now, by the way, I, I, don't, I don't disagree that for certain retailers, that makes a ton of sense. But too often, it's spoken about as if, you know, retail is one giant uh, marketplace where, you know, singular concepts will win out. Yeah, no, totally. And, and like, obviously, a, a lot of the, the future of retail is experience come from vendors that are selling uh, in-store experience components. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. There's there's probably some some uh, self interest there, right? Like, yeah. If you, um, uh, I do want to go back for just a second though to the, your apparel point because this, uh, uh, I've been watching this for quite a while and it, it's super interesting. Um, I have a bunch of data that sort of mirrors your conclusion, like that the number of items in the consumer's closet is very consistent over time, but that the value of those I- items is consist is significantly lower today um and and it's like uh some of my hypothesis like a lot of the the production for apparel has moved like over the last 40 years has moved offshore it's gotten dramatically more automated um and so not only is it less expensive to make but it, it actually in most cases is higher quality and more durable so it's like you have to replace it slightly less often than, than you, you did 20 or 30 years ago. And so, you know, when you look at a lot of the retail segments that are doing well, and some of the ones that are struggling, um, ones that sell a lot of apparel, you know, tend to over index in the struggling category. And, and my hypothesis is like this, this is the fundamental reason why we wear more casual clothing and the clothing we buy costs less than it used to. Yeah, and no, I, I think those I think all those points are dead on. I mean, I, I couldn't come up with a chart that charted whether or not there's more naked people uh, that I'm seeing on the street. Right. Because <laughs> I, I don't know yeah. if I'm wishing for that or not. But yeah. <laughs> like, like people are still wearing clothes. Right. Uh, and it's not like, uh, you know, people are wearing bell bottoms or, you know, whatever we wore in the 90s. I mean, like they're, not only are they wearing clothes, but they're wearing stylish clothes. Uh, so I think you're I think your conclusions are, are right on. I think we've got to look deeper at, you know, the underlying 
that's why I like to look at the underlying economics, the underlying changes that are really changing the competitive environment. Because honestly, I think the consumer and the millennial in, in particular is getting blamed. They're getting the short end of the stick. They're getting blamed for way more than they really have control, you know, control over. Um, the, the other thing I'd say is too often, I think people speak about things like some of these things just showed up overnight. Uh, when in fact, you know, everything we've spoken about so far could be seen in the trends 10 years ago, 15 years ago. These are not new phen phenomena that show, you know, this showed up in, 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 in the marketplace, you know, yesterday or the day before. But I think that, um, is, you know, oftentimes we speak about it like that's the case. You know, even the trends around like millennials get married later, you go, well, go back to Generation X and you would have found that that trend was apparent then too. I mean, it didn't just suddenly show up. And what you're talking about relative to apparel also did not suddenly show up. You can track these trends back 30 years. Yeah. And yet no CEO from an apparel company has ever mentioned that for missing their comps. Right, right, right. Uh, the weather. How about yeah. that? <laughs> Always the weather. weather. Always the weather. <laughs> Too hot, too cold. <laughs> so apparel retailers are in, in a bad position. Um, you know, we if you look at kind of the Q1 results, mall-based retailers are really struggling. Um, do, do you think these changing consumer behaviors mean that malls are pretty much toast? Um, yeah, I think the malls are struggling. And I, of course, when you talk about malls, there's different kinds of malls. Uh, and I think there are certain kind of malls, you know, certainly, um, you know, lifestyle malls have done better than, you know, B or C malls. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I don't personally think that malls full stop or toast. I think there's continued evolution of what's interesting to the consumer. Clearly appealing to a higher end consumer is helpful. Um, but I think that the mall, as we kind of understood it in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, is likely is likely, you know, finished its productive life. That's that's more opinion of mine than it is anything I saw, you know, particularly in the data. Cool. And we did have a we did have a little interesting data related to traffic. So again, in our we've got this uh, Center for Consumer Insights. We have over four terabyte terabytes of data that that cover many different kinds of data, including credit card transaction that we use to do a lot of our study. But we also have location data. Uh, we have quite a bit of location data related to people's uh, you know, cell phones, where they're going, how we can look at and understand traffic patterns. Um, you know, that's also within our data. And when we, when we looked at the traffic data, part of the question we had was like, are people going less places? That was kind of the question we started with. And the answer there was no, no, actually, in fact, overall foot traffic per our measurement was up 6%. And that's foot traffic, not just to retailers, by the way. We measured it broadly. Let's call it consumer foot traffic. So we looked at convenience, QSR, fuel. We looked at restaurants. We looked at um, entertainment, et cetera. Um, and we found overall foot traffic was up between 17 and 18, 6%. And not only that, but retail, for, or retail foot traffic was up 2%. Now, within that, if you dropped grocery out, it was actually down 1%. Okay, so the traditional locations like department store or or mall, you know, definitely the, the traffic was down. Uh, but another interesting uh, fact that we saw was the concentration. There's this amazing concentration for those stores that were losing traffic. Ninety percent of the lost foot traffic were concentrated in just 16 percent of the retail stores. 
And meanwhile, 22% of the gains in foot traffic or sorry, uh, we're, we're concentrating in just 22%. So the, the vast majority of the gains, 90% of the gains, were concentrated in 22% of the stores track. So, you know, largely this idea that people are going less retail, you know, it isn't true. And to where it would, to the extent that it is true, it's very concentrated on a, a small number of stores. Now, let me expand on that data because I think the traffic data is also interesting. This question about are malls dead? I think it's a bigger question about where are people going and how's that changing. Now, fascinating, I talked earlier about convenience. We actually found that convenience trips were up 16% year over year. Hmm. Trips that we would attribute into categories like, like uh, entertainment were actually up 8%. So there actually is foot traffic you know, that's happening and it's happening in, in different places. Grocery last year, you know, had, had solid traffic. Convenience stores in particular were really solid and trips for fuel were really uh, solid as well. So there's some really interesting data in there. And by the way, within our Center for Consumer Insights, we're able to slice and dice this data at an incredibly granular level. So for many of our clients, we're able to dig into data, not only about themselves, but, uh, their competitors to really understand how particular consumers are changing. We're able to slice and dice it by the economic factors that we shared earlier as well. Yep. Seems like people are going to the mall for the Apple store, essentially. And then they're getting, <laughs> getting their, their delicious device and, and kind of leaving and not visiting all the other, certainly not the apparel stores on their way out. Where there's, there's a lot being written these days about they're going, you know, for their massage and they're going for uh, their Zumba class. I don't know. Do people still do Zumba? Um, Jason, you, you do Zumba, right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, like their stock just crashed just from you saying that. <laughs> that could, Zumba clearly doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> goat, goat yoga is the, the rage. Goat, goat yoga. Hot, hot, hot goat yoga. Hot goat yoga. Yeah. The goat yoga. <laughs> goats have to be hot. Uh, my like top line takeaway from, from your traffic story was, was sort of, uh, going back to that bifurcation theme that it's almost not useful to look at overall homogeneous traffic um because there's there's like significant winners and losers in the traffic game that's right that's right you really i mean across the board what what all this tells me is that you know there's one element which i call the the diversity of the consumer is skyrocketing and not just diversity you know along uh you know uh, let's say racial lines but economic lines you know as we look at we looked a lot in geographic and how geographic behavior was different um there's just dramatically more diversity within our consumer base um and and you know you got to you've got to look at it through that lens you've got to be willing to slice and dice you know to get inside the insights um you know otherwise you're going to deal in these macro topics that that don't mean much yeah, I, and I want to explore that that diversity of audience uh, more. Um, but just a couple of uh, sort of wrap up questions on the on the traffic topic. Um, another interesting thing that you you looked at um, that was super helpful to me because I've I've talked about it a lot and tried to find a good data set um, is the whole urban versus rural thing. Um, so, you know, one of the hypotheses would be like, we built all these malls in the sixties when everyone was migrating to the suburbs, there's all these regional malls out in the suburbs that aren't performing well. Maybe that's because, you know, uh, populations are starting to migrate back from, uh, suburbs to urban city centers. Um, but when you look at, you know, the sort of top line government data, 
it, it doesn't really support that. Like the, like overall people are still migrating um, from, from city centers to suburbs as they get older and more wealthy. Um, but uh, if I read your data, right, like you, you broke it down and you discovered that like uh, it is true that younger audiences are tending to, to aggregate in city centers, you know, maybe for economic opportunity. Yeah, that, that's right. So at the at the headline level, you're right. We've got the data that says people are still moving to the suburbs. Uh, and this is, again, the problem with sort of looking at things at the macro level, because that would just say, OK, well, nothing's really changed. But then we dug deeper and we looked specifically at the, the population 25 to 34. And what we found was there is a dramatic reversal of behavior that we see there. So from 2000 to 2009, you know, we saw a, a pretty significant shift away from city centers for people of that of that age group. Uh, however, from 2010 to 2014, we saw a dramatic reversal. What we saw was, you know, was that there's an 18% growth of people moving to city centers. So without a doubt, people are absolutely moving to the, you know, the revitalized city centers. And this has to, you know, it has to be related also to this idea about, are we buying homes? Yeah. Well, we're not buying homes, um, you know, but it, it, it's a little chicken in the egg because, you know, you might argue it's because these consumers are just different. They don't want to move to the suburbs and buy homes. Or you could look at the economic data and say, well, they actually aren't at a financial position yet yeah. to to buy a home and move to the suburbs. Therefore, they're paying rent and they're doing so in the in the city centers where, you know, where there's jobs. Of course, we have more educated consumers, but there's also this, or sorry, more educated, you know, workforce consumers. Um, but there's also a concentration. We talked about, look, the only ones really participating in the economic growth are the high income consumers. Okay. Well, there's a concentration of where those high income jobs are located and they tend to be, you know, more urban you know, oriented. And, and certainly you can pick out a few cities where you could probably, you know, say there's a lot of concentration here. So there's reason why, uh, you know, a consumer who has, you know, this increased debt, you know, who isn't in an economic position to move to the suburbs is actually, you know, moving to the city centers, you know, not just for a cultural reason, but for economic reasons. Yeah, um, for sure. The, the other thing that's interesting to me about the traffic data, because like th this has befuddled me for a while, and I still don't think I, I have it completely explained. Um, but uh, in my role, I get to uh, do a lot of surveying of customers and hear a lot of voice of customer. And a, a super consistent thing that consumers tell me, and I, I highlight tell me because, like, you know, I always I take things consumers tell me with a grain of salt – um, is that uh, we're more time starved than ever before? That we have yeah, yeah. that we have less time, and um, like I believe that they believe that. Uh, two interesting things in your data: number one, on average, we're working less hours than we used to, um, which I, I have seen in other data sets as well. Which sort of makes you wonder, huh? It seems like we should be slightly less time starved if we used to work forty hours and now we're working thirty three hours. Um, but the other thing is. Uh, like we're time starved. So we super value convenience comma. Like we're buying our groceries from more stores. We're doing more grocery trips right, right, right. now than, than we used to. And you go, wait a minute, if you're time starved and you value convenience, wouldn't you go to one grocery store and get all your stuff rather than 
going to six grocery stores, but yeah. And I can't, uh, I can't argue for the craziness of, of, you know, what, where, where the data doesn't sort of stack up, uh, you know, but you, but you're absolutely right here that says, you know, we, we, we took that on and said, okay, everybody's fighting for this time star of consumers. So tell me about it. Uh, of course, what we found was since 1960, there's been a 9% decrease in overall uh, hours worked per, per person. So that's a considerable time period. But it's also a, a pretty good chunk in, in decrease. During that same period, you know, working age population is increased by, by 44%. And the labor, or the labor force participation is increased by 9%. Yeah. So we actually have you know, more people participating in the workforce um, you know, it's up significantly. Of course, during that same time period, uh, you know, our, our labor force, um, you know, really had the, you know, increase in number of women that were participating in, in the workforce. So we're, as, a, as an economy, we're working more, okay? Yeah. But per person, we're working less. And we looked at it, like, particularly around discretionary time. And there has been a nine minutes per day increase in discretionary time in the last 10 years, that's over an hour a week of additional discretionary time that we have, you know, to spend. So it doesn't really add up that, that, you know, that people are time starved and have, have less time, except to the extent that maybe they have more options. Yep. You know, we also had data around, you know, the amount of time people are spent, uh, you know, on retail trips. Yeah. And we've seen, you know, of course, we've seen a decrease in, in the amount of time being spent shopping. Obviously, uh, you know, e-commerce has a, has a major uh, you know, play in that as well. Yeah. No, my hypothesis is that at least part of it is the expectations are higher. So what consumers are expecting to get done in a week um, are higher and therefore they feel more time starved to get it all done. And the same thing like uh, expectations about quality of uh, food you serve your family is higher. So, you know, it, it's no longer acceptable to just go one place and get one quality of food. Like you have to go multiple places. And and so it's, it's all in, in, in context to expectations. Um, I, I, I agree with that, though. I'm not sure I completely agree, you know, with this idea, that, like just the one point you made around quality of food being higher, because I actually think that there's because I, I hear this a lot from our grocery clients, this idea that uh, the consumer is more health conscious than ever. Um, and I, I, you know, our data would lead us to believe that maybe maybe a consumer is more health conscious but I'm not necessarily sure that that all consumers are more health conscious, right? Because we, while we've seen an increase in you know life expectancy, we've actually seen a dramatic increase in you know in the obesity rates, and in particular, we see a dramatic increase in obesity rates for you know lower income consumers. Um, so, uh, and by the way, I read an article that this isn't you know included in our report that talked about the sheer magnitude of grocery sales that now happen through dollar type stores. Yep. Right. And so I, I like when people say they don't shop the center aisle anymore, they're only shopping the outside aisle. I always try and go, well, how does that, how does that reconcile with, you know, the increased, you know, sale of groceries, um, you know, at dollar stores. Yeah. So again, back to the bifurcation, we, we can't think, you know, in these platitudes of the consumer being a singular consumer comes back to the idea that there's dramatic more diversity and we have to dig into that. Yeah. So let's dive into that. I will say um, it is funny. Like if you look at Frito's sales um, over over the last 30 years, like consumers are not uh, uh, shopping more healthily. But if you look at organic produce sales, you would say they are. So it's it's right, like, right, right. For, for your point, like it uh, that 
the it's dangerous looking at averages and as a a, a smart analyst I work with points out to me all the time, on average, Nepal is flat. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't paint a very helpful picture of Nepal. Yeah, um, yeah. So going going back to this, like the audience is wildly different um, today than they've been in the past, and that you know uh, traditionally we had pretty homogeneous groups. Um, and per your report, like there's much greater diversity. Um, Talk to me about like how that plays out. Like you in the report highlighted that that some of those um, those groups have disproportionate uh, economic opportunity for retail growth, and and you you've seen some interesting things about how various retailers um, have done trying to win some of those those diverse groups. Yeah, well, you know, we, we couldn't talk about the consumer um, and the changing consumer without talking about e-commerce. Uh, however, what, what I didn't want to say, you know, in the report was, hey, e-commerce is growing because that probably wouldn't that probably wouldn't shock anybody. So we sort of tried to do the same thing and dig into that growth, you know, through, you know, an ethnicity lens, income and generational lens. And something jumped out at me that was really shocking. And maybe it wasn't shocking the more I thought about it, but it was surprising to me when I discovered it. And that had to do with the growth rate uh, of, of different populations, like how fast are those populations coming online? And I use, I use an example here. Um, if I look at by income, so the, the consumer who is between zero and $35,000 per year is actually their, their CAGR of online spin is 14%. So that's pretty significant. And then you compare that to the high income who's only 7%. Now, of course, that's inverse, that, that's inverse to the share that they already spend online. So in other words, the low income consumer spends less online, but the growth of that spending uh, is, is you know, doubling the pace of the high income consumer. And that's honestly what we found across the board. When we looked at ethnicity, what we found is the lowest penetrated um, you know, uh, 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 cohort, the African-American, um, is, is growing at a rate three times that of the highest penetrated cohort, which is Asian. So they're growing at a 15% CAGR, Asians growing at 5%. Same thing at income and same thing generationally. So the, the millennial who's already shopping online more is growing at a much slower rate than the baby, baby boomers are who are growing at 11% CAGR. So as we looked at that, that was kind of fascinating to sort of think about, you know, these new populations that are, are joining, you know, the e-commerce um, you know, shopping trend. And we asked the question about, okay, well, let's look at our credit card data and let's see if we can't assess, you know, who's winning and losing as it relates to that new population coming on coming online. And in particular, we looked at, um, we tried to compare, you know, Walmart and Amazon. And we asked the question, you know, who's winning and losing with these various populations? And, um, you know, may, maybe it's surprising, but what we found is generally speaking, well, first of all, they're, they're both winning. However, Walmart seems to be outperforming, okay, uh, for all of the cohorts, except for, and I don't know why this is, uh, the African-American cohort that tends to, to tip in favor of Amazon slightly. Uh, so it's just interesting that these populations are coming online. And then when you look at where they're going, in some ways, you might think that they're, they're kind of willing to and, 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 you know, are shopping with the brands that, that appeal to, you know, their needs and the things that are most important to them. Cool. Um, we could talk about this uh, for hours, uh, but we want to kind of at this point 
pivot a little bit and try to talk about a couple scenarios. So, uh, and I encourage readers, you know, this is not all the topics in the data. So, so I definitely encourage you to download the report and read more. Um, so, so there's definitely a lot more there than we've talked about. Um, let's talk about how retailers take this data and make it actionable. And I, I thought a fun framework there would be just a couple scenarios that we know are, are kind of, you know, personas of folks that listen to the podcast. So, so the first scenario is, you know, I am, uh, you know, a pretty senior person at an omni-channel retailer. Uh, you know, I, it feels like I just got my head around, you know, some of the trends you talked about in 2018 and, and here, here you talk about, you know, all these new trends that are happening. How, how should I digest this report? And or what are some examples that you've seen of retailers, you know, doing something in reaction to the report? Uh, yeah, okay, that's that's a great question, and I try and think a lot about that when we're developing the report. Now, first of all, we we develop the report in a way that has to be a pr- uh, applicable to a broad set of clients. So we think we do that, but we also have the ability through our center of consumer insights to go much deeper uh, and get into you know either category specific at a lower level or, or client specific, and we're we're absolutely doing that on the backs of the report. Uh, but but more importantly, I think that what we're this idea about this growing diversity, and it's coupled with, you know, the reduction in barriers to entry in our industry. So when you take this growing diversity with you know increased uh, you know segments with very unique needs, and you couple that with lower barriers to entry, meaning we have more competitors who are able to very specifically target those retailers, we actually have to start to think about how we compete differently. Now, the problem, though, that many large, you know, omni-channel retailers might have is we come from a place where we have this giant monolithic value proposition. And we like to say it has, it, we try to appeal to everybody, but the, the reality is it's, you know, you know, one giant value proposition that kind of hits at what was the traditional middle class, uh, you know, consumer. And what we've actually got to begin to do is think about how this implies we have to compete differently. And what I like to say is the market is fragmenting, right? What we've got to do is we've got to think about how do we allow the fragmenting of our offers and not just offers like marketing offers. I'm thinking about, you know, offers like store formats, store locations, maybe even brands, but products that we carry, uh, you know, price points, uh, the difference between value and convenience and where you employ that and how you employ that. Um, and, and there certainly are, are examples in the marketplace of, of retailers that are heading down this path of, of looking at, you know, different models that they either have under the same banner or even different banners that they, you know, they leverage their scale, but take advantage of those different banners. So I think there's a strategic, you know, um, takeaway from all of this that, that says we've got to think differently about how we target consumers because of the fragmentation and the, the diversity that's showing up in the consumer. And frankly, that has an implication back to how we operate, our operating model, and how we think about going after the consumer. The second thing that I'd sort of highlight here is that you know the consumer, in some ways, isn't changing. And in other ways, they are changing, but it's not because they're just culturally different necessarily but because they're under a lot of pressures. And so, and by the way, those pressures, as I mentioned, have been in the trends. There's no secret in the pressures and they've been, you know, if, if we're paying attention to the trends we're, we're, and we're digging in the data, you'll see that these have been, uh, you know, they're long lived trends. So are we paying enough attention and thinking about how we evolve what we sell, right? Or do we define ourselves by the categories that we define ourselves by? 
Do we, do we think differently about the services that we offer? Are we evolving ourselves at the rate of the consumer's needs? Um, you know, are we really thinking about what that evolution means to us? Because oftentimes I get this question, I got this a lot on the great retail bifurcation. You're like, well, what do you do if you're stuck in the middle? Uh, and, and the answer is, don't be stuck in the middle. Get out of the middle. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Like, you, you know, there, there is no marketing message that changes that. It actually means you have to, you have to recast who you are, what you offer, and to whom you offer it to. But you know, that, that's the evolution of business. Frankly, if you're not going to evolve, the marketplace will evolve. And we have over 100 years of proof of that. Yep. yep. Um, so uh, the uh, great answer, um, turning uh, our attention to the other side of that, that value equation, the, brand, the traditional brands that like, you know, um, maybe aren't doing as well selling through those, those traditional retailers as they used to. And in, in many cases, are now starting to, to evolve a direct-to-consumer strategy. Um, is there any takeaway for, from, for the brands in this report? Is there, is there something you think they should fundamentally be thinking about differently? Yeah, there, there is. Um, though I, I would tell you that there's, a, there, there's a, a phenomenon going on right now. I call it the rise of the brand. Now we don't really go deep into that into the report, but you can certainly see that 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 those you know consumer products companies that have invested heavily in in a brand uh, that's a lifestyle brand, you know, et cetera, you'll, you'll discover that they end up with a lot more you know pricing power because it's kind of it, there's two things happening at one time. There's the commoditization of retail, and there's the rise of these brands occurring at the same time. Well, if you're a retailer that's playing on the commodity side, you're actually, you know, having deteriorating margins. If you're a brand, you know, and there's good examples of brands out there. There's certainly athletic brands, but there's a there's a great, um, you know, lifestyle brand out there that deals in in you know coolers and and out you know outdoor sort of products, you know, uh, warming cups, etc. Um, you know, that has done a, a tremendous job, sort of building this lifestyle brand around a, a product or a category product you, you never would have thought about. Right. Um, and, and with that comes the power that allows you to go direct to consumer because your brand is important enough. And also comes with a magic thing that I like to call margin. Now, not every consumer products company out there has a brand that allows them to do that. You know, you can imagine, you know, uh, as you're standing at, you know, the checkout at the grocery store, there's a lot of products that are, are trying to be sold to you at checkout, right? Uh, and they all have a brand associated with them, but they don't have the lifestyle brand or they don't have the uh, wherewithal that some of those brands that I mentioned do. So it's interesting just to watch the evolution of the marketplace and the rise of brands as a counter to uh, the commoditization of retail. So some brands will figure that out and figure out how to do that. And other brands, you know, frankly, either don't have the permission or, or maybe aren't the kind of category that can invest enough to, to develop a brand, you know, in that way. Cool. So then uh, kind of the, the third type of listener or persona we have is a very entrepreneurial online seller, you know, maybe a year, maybe five years ago, they were selling books and then they were selling, selling apparel and now they're looking for that next thing to sell. As I listened to you talk about, you know, these underserved uh, demographics coming online you know, that seems like there's got to be a whole set of products there that would be interesting in any, anything from the data for kind of that more entrepreneurial kind of set. Yeah. I, I think that, I think the data feeds that, you know, massively because what we basically say is there's this increasing diversity of the consumer and diversity along many different, um, you know, 
axes, if you will. Um, you know, we can think economic diversity, we can think geographic diversity, we can think about, you know, different languages, or just different needs. So the ability today of a, you know, an entrepreneur to start a company, be very smart and targeted about who they're going after, uh, you know, and be able to, you know, penetrate and, and serve that market in a way that the, the mega companies are unable to because they're not that specific um, is phenomenal. And frankly, you know, I call that the, um, you know, it's death by a thousand paper cuts for many of the large, uh, you know, retailers or many of the large, you know, commoditized retailers, right? Um, and I love, I, there's a great story. My daughter's, you know, 13, she plays basketball and there was, uh, uh, you know, there's advertisements that came up on her Instagram feed for a company that deals specifically in basketball apparel with sweatshirts, with these, you know, crazy basketball sayings on it. And, you know, this has found her and she is a niche market that has this incredible need. And frankly, we couldn't go to, you know, we couldn't go to the mall and walk into a department store and find, you know, the sweatshirt that has, you know, basketball smack talk on it. But this company found her and they were able to, you know, be very targeted about it. And I think right now the, the time is so ripe for companies to be able to do that. I think the the research really shows that. And the challenge for the bigger retailers is how do you become that? Instead of saying, how do I have my big monolithic value proposition that tries to appeal to a big fat middle class? How do I actually allow myself, my operating model to fragment and go after these pockets of opportunity that in and of themselves are small? You know, that historically, you know, the big retailer would say my scale wouldn't allow it. But how do you do that at scale? That's the big question. And frankly, you know, or maybe, maybe that's where this topic of personalization that the market seems infatuated with for the last 20 years, maybe that's where that actually has some applicability. Whereas the market largely hasn't figured out where, you know, the applicability really is, you know, just applied to the traditional companies. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I, I would argue that both both the the scale that you just described and the sort of innovators dilemma that we've we you you and I have talked about on past shows, like both make it hard for for sort of the the big incumbents to react quickly uh to new insights like this. And so it, it does seem like there's an opportunity for for more entrepreneurial companies to be more agile. And there's a question of, can you do that at scale? Is there a way with automation for you to identify pockets of opportunity to, you know, act against them and in aggregate, you know, do that at a large enough scale that makes sense? And I don't know, there's there's no example yet that exists out there. But at, at the end of the day, if if the large companies are unable to do this, the market will do it. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting. I mean, and there's micro versions of this we face all the time, but like... Imagine you're a, a retailer and you're 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 trying to reach um, a big audience with a, a a message that'll cause them to buy from you. Like his, historically, you could buy that audience on television, um, and you could reach a ton of people. Um, today, we're finding that that uh, gosh, you can reach a thousand people on Instagram that will have a way higher um, likelihood uh, to buy your product. Uh, through some kind of like micro influencer campaign, right? And the the cost to acquire each of those thousand consumers could be much lower than the cost to uh, to acquire them on television. Uh, the problem is you you can't buy 
10 million consumers through, you know, a thousand consumers at a bite. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, that's a great story, but I don't need a thousand com- consumers. I need, you know, millions. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that, that's going to be a, a, a good challenge. We'll uh, be <laughs> looking forward to seeing seeing who, who uh, solves that one. Uh, but I do want to wrap up with, with one question. Um, so, you know, historically, like these, these um, demographics and age cohorts, like, I mean, I feel like the reason that they get used is because they were originally the only things we knew about the audiences we could buy. So when you bought a, a radio um, audience or you bought a television audience, age and gender were the two things you knew. So marketers learned how to try to, you know, um, uh, segment the audience based on age and gender. Um, is, is that model now antiquated? Like should, should marketers just be moving away from the whole notion of age cohorts and should we not even try to invent something after generation Z and should, Instead, they'd be thinking about economic cohorts or behavioral cohorts or something else or what? Yeah, yeah the, answer, the answer to that is yes. Uh, but I'd actually take it one further because with the, you know, it, it, the kind of analytics that that are now available, you know, and I keep talking about, uh, you know, our, our Center for Consumer Insights, our ability to slice and dice and ask questions and dig deeper and, um you know, on the fly, try and figure out where the pockets of opportunity exist. That's the, that's the key question. Where are the pockets of opportunity and how do I identify those? And, you know, most organizations are not yet good at this. Most organizations don't either have the data, they don't have the operations in place that allow them to ask the right questions of the data. They may not have the right, you know, staff on board to help them slice and dice. But this, you know, in this marketplace that's evolving with this increased diversity and this increased competition, identifying pockets of opportunity is going to be a competitive advantage. So we shouldn't be buying and thinking segments. We should be thinking about how do I go at the data over and over and over again with different slices, you're looking for those you know, nuggets of gold that are in there. Because that's what I spent, like I spent the last, like I said, spent the last 10 months doing that in this report. And, and a lot of the questions we asked of the data didn't tell us much. And those aren't in the report. So we kept asking questions and digging deeper and saying, this is interesting. What if we asked it this way? And that's where we come up with the insights. So that that's the mental model that has to shift, shift is just how do we think different about operationalizing the analytics capability. No, that's that's uh, great advice. Um, and that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Um, so if you have a burning question that we didn't get a chance to ask Casey or you want to discuss anything uh, that we touched on on today's show, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or leave us a note on our Facebook page and we'll, we'll be thrilled to get back to you. As always, uh, if you enjoyed the show, the way you could repay us is by jumping on the iTunes and giving us that five-star review. Casey, really appreciate you coming on the show. One last question. Uh, if folks want to kind of follow your thoughts online about all this, what's the best way for them to follow you? Oh, sure thing. I, so on Twitter, and I actually continue to, to you know, tweet out different insights from the report. It's uh, at K-L-O-B-A-U-G-H. Uh, and then, of course, I'm also on LinkedIn at Casey Lobaugh. And no need to write those down. If you're driving, we'll, we'll get both of them in the show notes. And until next time, happy commercing. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 